Oh, crap. I didn't even write an intro. Um, here, you do the intro this time. What are some summary things you've been doing? You know, that are just like good summertime. <laughs> You've been doing any summertime things? Does reading count? <laughs> no, I go on a lot of walks. You go on a lot of walks? Yeah, okay. because that's like my solace from work slash reading. So. <laughs> Right? Yeah, shorter, f- more fun, okay. fluid, free flowy. Okay, cool. Should I start over? Should I? Is this all Get close part to the mic. Is this all part of it? This can all be part of the intro, yeah. Well, I don't want it to be. <laughs> <laughs> okay, welcome back to Bristlecomb Firesides um, Summer Sessions. Here we discuss some of the lighter topics of our interests. And since our last podcast, which I don't think I was on. You were not. <laughs> I have been to Montana, which I think I, is where I was when you were recording this. Yeah. I have been taking lots of walks and spending glorious evenings in my backyard. Ugh, that sounds really great. I don't have a backyard in daybreak, so bummer. it's a big bummer. My backyard is not to brag, <laughs> but overlooks Mount Olympus. Yeah, it's really great back there, and she's got a garden back there. The only thing that I can say is that there's a community pool, like like two blocks from my house, and so I just compete with the kids um, to go swim in it. Yeah, I don't have that. <laughs> I do go to a community pool, but it's not as close to my house as I would like it to be. Yeah, and there is a 7-Eleven mile from my house that I walk to a lot. They are starting to recognize me um, <laughs> because of Slurpees, uh, and I'm starting- Do you go I'm 7-Eleven? And get a free Slurpee? No, but I got a free Slurpee for signing up and putting my phone number in to get bonus points. Incredible. And so now they're starting to recognize me, which is either a good thing or a bad thing. It's both. Well, I don't want to tell you that my local drink place also (laughs) recognizes me. I'm like, hey, guys, the pickup orders for me. I'll just have the regular. (laughs) I definitely have the app. I order on the app. Yeah. I won't tell you what I order. I won't tell you what it is. I don't need to know what it is. I don't need to know. We don't even know what it is. I did. Anyways, we can talk endlessly about drinks. I love it. Endlessly about drinks. So for today's summer session bonus episode, I thought would be really fun would be to um, discuss uh, the poem Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. Uh, We've referenced this in a previous episode, um, but I thought it'd be fun to do, you know, the humanities class thing, which is to read the poem and then kind of dissect it piece by piece, because this is probably my favorite poem or among my favorite poems. It's, it's actually on my wall in my room. Uh, I got a nice print of it um, from Etsy. Uh, and like this poem is just speaks to me in a lot of beautiful ways. And so I thought it'd be fun to, to actually sit down and dissect it. I like that. Yeah. So let me, let me read it to start. And I've historically not been great at um, reading things. We'll try. Here goes. Here goes nothing. 
This is Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. So like from, from the first, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. What are, what are your thoughts on that, on that stanza? I think it's interesting that, uh, I should never start a sentence that way. <laughs> <laughs> the word interesting probably means nothing. So let me redo that. All right, I want to redo it. What I find fascinating about this opening line is you do not have to be good this idea, and I've been reading a lot of like religious texts and, um, you know, secondary texts on uh, scripture, um, but you do not have to be good. This idea that God declared the earth as, as good, everything in it as good. And, and um, you know, it's kind of like this freedom from that. And I yeah. think there are a lot of different interpretations. Like to me, um, good doesn't necessarily mean like, uh, the, the kind of like good versus bad, you know, your mom scolding you for being a bad kid, but rather like the idea that, um, that like God's creation is good. Um, but this kind of releases us from a freedom of constantly worrying about the like, sins that we've committed, obviously in the next two lines, you know, you don't have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. That's pretty striking imagery considering, you know, the Christian, uh, yeah. canon of, of people walking through the desert and even, even Book of Mormon peoples or in the Old Testament peoples. Yeah. So to me, it's like starting this whole poem off with like lighten your load, essentially like the, repentance doesn't look like this flagellative, uh, you know, process of, mm -hmm. of continually putting yourself under stress and, right. and duress, but rather like a, you know, a release from that, that like truly if we're, if we're going to experience repentance or something like it, it's more creaturely, it's more, yeah of a, of a release from those things. So I love that opening line. You do not have to be good. Well, it's a pretty striking opening line too. the, the, I mean, you do not have to be good is very like, it's pretty, it sounds pretty radical coming from a Mormon background, coming from a Christian background, right? Because our whole paradigms and worldviews are based on, no, you do have to be good. You do have to be good. You got to obey all the commandments. You got to, you know, you got to hit all the boxes. Um, and to say, no, you don't, you don't have to be good. You know, the, I think the, the crew, the, you know, the crucial word there is half, 
mm-hmm. have, I guess, um, that it's something, it's something that you're obligated into, right? It's very mercenary, right? I think that we, we use our present moment goodness as a means to a future end. And that keeps us in a prison of needing, of having to be good, right? Instead right. of just being good as an expression of who we are. And so I think that that opening stanza is really striking. It's, it's radical in its, in its take. Um, and I love it. And especially um, as, you know, the poem goes on, uh, and we've already kind of touched on this already here, um, as well as in future episodes, is that um, this idea of repenting as like, I need to get rid of this, I've sinned and I need to repent and, and then ask for forgiveness for this, this sin. And then the sin like leaves me is very like, it's very myopic and it's very individualistic approach to, to sin and repentance. Right. right. Um, but, uh, a different take on repentance that uh, within the context of the poem is, is seeing yourself as part of a larger community. And that is what repentance is, is it's, it's stopping being an I and starting to become a we. We already uh, kind of in our pre-conversation, we, we kind of touched on this, but the next the next stanza, you only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. That's, I like that um, because we kind of talked about how considering ourselves as soft animals is also pretty uh, radical concept in our society that like wants to con- commodify our bodies, commodify our work, commodify our productivity. Um, and to, to let the soft animal of our body love what it loves is, um, really tender and really vulnerable to me. Yeah. I mean, again, I've been reading a lot of, uh, <laughs> like secondary <laughs> texts that have a religious focus. So, um, forgive me if I'm slipping into that a little bit too much, oh, please. but I've been, you know, reading, like I said, Norman Wersba. Um, and in this, this most recent book from creation, from nature to creation, he discusses the idea of, um, Adam and Eve both being made of flesh. So this idea that of course we, we as Christians believe that Eve, um, you know, God put Adam to sleep, um, while he was slumbering, took a rib from Adam, created Eve, um, and that essentially Eve and Adam are tied together through this like common flesh, but also that like the same flesh that Adam is created of that, that, um, kind of material of the earth, that dust of the earth, um, all creatures are, are created from that same dust of the earth. So anything that we do on the land is, is essentially flesh from flesh, like growing a garden, um, heating ourselves with the energy that the earth creates, um, is almost another way of growing a mutual respect for the joining of a flesh and flesh. Right. Um, so I love that like soft body imagery, or soft animal um, of your body kind of imagery, this idea of like not conjoined flesh. That's like the wrong thing, but um, this kind of shared uh, fleshy corporeality of, of being a creature. Yeah. Cause I think part of the, uh, the paradigm of Western America and, and even in religious America is 
we are apart from, right? We don't even like thinking of ourselves as animals, right? Adam mm-hmm. and Eve were not, Adam and Eve, like, we're not the animals in the Garden of Eden. They named the animals, right? Right. Um, but uh, I think that hierarchizes, hierarchizes, whatever. It creates too much of a hierarchy, right? And it, it, the burden of being at the top of that hierarchy is just too great and it's too stressful. It's too, like, it's... N- it's too, it's more than any one person can, can be at the, you know, can handle. Um, and I also, I think, uh, the living in the the world that we live in, our bodies have been, you know, the paradigm is with which we view our own bodies. We, we, we view ourselves as more of machines than we do as animals. Right. Uh, I mean, how you can even see that in just the way that we're hear that and just the way that we talk about like our stress levels. I don't have the bandwidth for that. Mm-hmm. Bandwidth is something we talk about about machines, yeah. It's not something we, you know, that's not something we, we say about our cat or our dogs, <laughs> right? We don't say right. that the dog doesn't have the bandwidth to like go play fetch or something right, right. now, right? Yeah. Um, but that we we talk about our brains and our bodies as though they are these the, these machines. And I've been reading this book. Um, it's called This Is Your Mind on Plants by Mo- Michael Pollan. Um, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. Um, but he, uh, in it, he, he talks about uh, th- these, you know, drug co- uh uh, compounds or molecules that we, that are derived from plants. And he's got a section on caffeine. Um, and he goes through the the history of coffee and tea and caffeine. And he, uh, talks about how the industrial revolution probably never would have happened if it weren't for caffeine. Um, because, um, prior to the development of coffee in the new world, um, people drank beer or wine before water because it was safer to drink. Right. And so that means that in, in Europe, they, people were, who were working their fields, farming, were nursing alcoholic buzzes <laughs> all the time, right? Which is not going to, that's not super productive. No. It's not, it's not going to grease. Probably like not great for your body. <laughs> probably also not great for your body. But um, when coffee and tea made it into Europe, um, the, what the caffeine did was it freed their bodies from their own biological circadian rhythms. And it created what we call as a night shift. And it allowed us to start working during off hours, Right which then freed people to do more work and be more productive, um, which then created this industrial revolution. Anyway, there's the, the history of coffee and tea is really fascinating and also really disheartening and to see what Europe and uh, Britain did to the East and the rest of the world to, to feed their habituation to these substances. Anyways. Um, but, uh, he, Michael Pollan says in the book that it's interesting. Um, you can, you can learn a lot about a society, um, by what what um, psychoactive molecules uh, or drugs, quote unquote drugs as we call them, um, are either legal or illegal. And so he, he talks about how caffeine is a psychoactive compound, but it's the most legal, the most used psychoactive, psychoactive compound in the entire world. And we use it and it's so used and we even have paid coffee breaks because it enhances our productivity. Mm. So it's the, the drug of choice of capitalism. It's the drug of choice of a, of a system that, that wants to extract as much exploitative resource out of our bodies as possible. And we almost use caffeine as a way to like short circuit our own circadian rhythms and not let our bodies be soft animal bodies that need sleep and need rest. Right. Uh, and it was just, was really an eye opening, um, eye opening section that, uh, I, I think as we approach our bodies like machines, I think that 
it, it separates ourselves from our own selves and it separates us from the earth. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think that, I think that approaching ourselves as these soft animals is really like, it's, it's beautiful imagery. Yeah. And it just makes me want to like coddle myself. Yeah. <laughs> coddle. I don't know. That's the right word. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, just while you've been talking, I listen to like some health podcasts too. Um, but like, first of all, the, you only have to let the soft animal, like that's very distinct imagery too. I, uh, there's a gym that, uh, is that my mom used to attend. Um, that was formerly, it formerly had hard bodies in the title. Um, as in like you come here to like get, get a harder body to lose all that like soft yeah. fat. Um, it's very burly masculine. And like, sounding. especially as women, um, fat is really natural, like a higher body percentage or body fat percentage is necessary for women. It's healthier for women. Um, you know, of course moderation, but, but naturally we are meant to have more body fat. Um, but also I've been listening to a podcast and one of the things they, they talk about is this woman like I work with as a nutritionist with all of these different people who essentially because of beauty standards and misinformation from the fitness world all have um, like trained their body to essentially uh, ignore their hunger cues. Mm. So they don't eat when they're hungry, but rather when they think they should or um, rather to uh, kind of delay their meals or whatever, you know, for whatever reason, they're ignoring their hunger cues and it, it trains their body to either think they're in this kind of famine mode or, um, it denies them of the nutrients that they need. And she talks about, you know, if your body is telling you that you're hungry, that's like a natural occurrence that you need to honor. Um, And I just think that's so interesting. I think this line could be misconstrued, you know, love what it loves, have whatever you want, you know, indulge in whatever you want. But that's just something we are trained to think as a society that has, that has been commodified. Like we can have whatever we want at the touch of a button. But I think what this is saying is more of that kind of naturalistic instinctual type type cues, um, like, what is like your body hunger love? or like, yeah, like enjoy what you enjoy, eat what you, what feels good, what nourishes you or become a um, hobbit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like enjoy the things that you enjoy because that's what makes you human. Yeah. Um, not these, these, you know, non-instinctual, yeah. um, things. And I'm not even saying like that this specifically has to be tied to nature, but no, I was, you know, well, I was communion with family or, uh, activities that you do or things that bring you joy. Yeah. No. Cause I was going to ask, you know, we've talked about the soft animal of your body, but love what it loves. Like, I think that is decidedly, if we're going to talk about, you know, at the beginning, you don't have to be good, but let your body love things that, you yeah. know, that's, and even the, the word let is, is, uh, you know, it's not something that you're doing. It's something that you're allowing, right? Yeah. There's something natural about our body's desire to love things, Yeah. right? Like I love water. In fact, I love water so much that I drink too much of it <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, as we've talked about on previous episodes. Um, 
What is it? Hyponatremia. Hyponatremia. Yeah. I can't believe I I remembered that. I know. I'm really impressed. Um, Uh, But I love that idea of, of letting your body love what it naturally loves. Yeah. It's interesting to, um, to go back to Norman Worsbus. Sorry. I'm just, he's hot on my mind. Um, for his book, <laughs> not him. Sorry. I mean, he's a, he's a great guy. He's, he's a good looking just, dude too. Um, no, Ooh, now I feel really here. uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but no, but he talks in this book specifically about the idea of love as being what will ultimately lead us to a reparation with the earth. Um, and with our quote unquote creaturely selves that like we are creatures of this earth. Um, and that only by loving the earth and that creaturely kind of nature, uh, of ourselves is really what's going to ultimately lead us back to a a good relationship with the earth too. No, I completely agree because I think part of that, you know, seeing ourselves as animals is also embracing our imperfections, right? Mm -hmm. Because machines are perfect. You know, like what was the, the Charlie Chaplin, you know, the, the, like 19th, 20th century, uh, metropolitan metropolis, 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 the German films, right. Yeah. Um, where it's the machines are perfect. The machines can do it better than we can do. Right. But to allow ourselves to be animals is to accept that we are imperfect and that we can't escape from our imperfection. And so rather than trying to escape our imperfection, embracing our imperfection and, right. and incorporating. Cause I, that's what love is like. That's what Jesus defines God's perfection as being able to include the imperfection in the circle of his love. Right. Um, and so like, I think you're totally right that, that our, that love is going to be the thing that helps us reconnect to nature. And I think that, goes well with the next few lines too. Tell me about despair yours and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Ooh, ooh, I, that line, tell me, tell me you about despair yours and I will tell you mine. Like mm-hmm. that is probably one of the most personal lines in the entire uh, poem, I think. Um, cause there's just something about, especially if we, you know, we're, we're talking from the paradigm of Mormonism with our baptismal covenants of mourn with those that mourn you know, comfort those that stand in need of comfort. There's something deeply human about, um, sharing our sorrows and our sufferings with each other. Um, and, and the, there's a love and a mutuality in that exchange of sorrows. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. Um, I want to talk a little bit before we, we move on to the meanwhile, because I think the meanwhile is just a really beautiful section, um, about like the, there is something about the human experience that creates despair, right? Mm-hmm. That, it, you know, the poem could say, tell me about your happiness and I will tell you about mine. Right. <laughs> right. But she's Mary Oliver specifically says, tell me about your despair yeah, and I will tell you about mine. So I want to talk a little bit about the tragic sense of life. If you're, is that a concept that you've encountered in your studies or whatever? Well, keep going. Let's see. Okay. <laughs> so, um, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different ways to talk about the tragic sense of life, but basically the tragic sense of life means that it, life will forever and always be imperfect. There's mm-hmm. always going to be a fly in the ointment, right? There's always going to like the milk is always going to go bad. Um, that, um, and not that there isn't goodness to life. Right. Um, but there's an inherent, as Richard Rohr says, or the Franciscan approach to Christianity, there's an inherent meaninglessness or irrationality to life. Mm. Right. Because I think 
I think what our, what we want to do and what our egos want to do is say, oh, this bad thing happened to me. It happened to me because of this reason and because I'm supposed to learn this lesson because God's trying to teach me X, right? And so we want to assign final causes to things. Mm. Um, and I know that I've been guilty of that. I mean, maybe maybe some of that is true, right? But in uh, you read The Hope of Nature, George Handley, right? Mm-hmm. You helped edit it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so he's got the 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 essay, The, the Economy of Creation. Mm-hmm. And in there, he talks about how we exist in a universe where everything is up to God, everything's up to us and everything's up to the universe. And that all those three, you know, us, God, and the universe have agency and that it's impossible in this universe to ever find a final cause of things. And so essentially what that means is that there's some degree of irrationality to reality. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that there's almost a kind of meaninglessness, not like not a, not a cosmic meaninglessness, Right. Like, no, I get what if you're I saying. If I stub my toe. That that's not like a zap from God. It's not a zap from God. It's yeah. just because I stub my, things happen. Yeah. Right. Like I was right. talking with this girl in my ward who, uh, uh, who, uh, when she was seven, her little brother, five years old, fell in the pool and drowned. And Gosh. all of her, all of her friends and family and, and ward members were like trying to put meaning onto the, onto the experience. Right. Which wasn't helping. Right. Because sometimes bad things just happen. Yeah. And it's not because God has determined that they happen or that we somehow did something wrong that created this thing, right? Sometimes right. things just happen. And I think that that is centered on the, the, the tragic sense, this tragic sense of life. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. I think that's, yeah. That's hard for us to let go of. Yeah. Because is. we kind of want there to be a, a one-to-one tit for tat. Yeah methodology to the universe, but I just don't think that there is. Right. And I can't read that. I mean, I know you said you don't want to move on to the meanwhile, but I can't, (laughs) I can't read that line without reading the meanwhile, the world goes on because I think, well, yeah, let's jump there then. I think that, you know, in telling people about your despair or even in your happiness, Mm -hmm. but specifically about your despair that like, there's also kind of maybe with that meaninglessness that sometimes there's like a lack of care that the world still goes on. The world still moves. All of these things continue to happen Mm -hmm. regardless of your existence or your despair and the existence of your despair. Right. And that again is really tragic to hear and think about, but I also feel like it reminds us what and who we are that the world does not turn around us. We are not the center of the world, but rather that we are like a part of its existence. We're part of this great story. Right. This larger story that includes us and it's not our tiny little story. And I love that it's, you tell me about yours, I'll tell you about mine, that it's this commonality, but it's also this uh, integration of, of people that like you're not here alone Yes, the world does not revolve around you, but you're also not here alone. You don't need to be alone. Um, And of course she addresses that later, but like you still fit within the existence of this universe and, and you're still very much a part of it. Yeah. I love that, that you tell me your story, I'll tell you mine. And then let's also look at the stories of the mountains and the wild geese flying around. Right. Yeah. I, yeah, that's a, that's something that I 
that I've found, especially over the last year, given the, the pandemic and everything, is that I've experienced my my little story of myself kind of subsumed in the larger story of reality. Right. right? And I think that that has been an incredibly like healing experience for me. And it's yeah. incredibly grounding as well. Yeah. Because it's not that my story doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's just that it's not centered. Right. It's not, it's not the only, the only show in town, right? That yeah. there's this huge, this, it's all of reality. It's the flow of reality that I'm a part of. Yeah. So I think this is something else that like we need to going back to that idea of humans as machines, um, like something that we need to move away from is the idea that like we are completely autonomous or, um, by autonomous, I, I simply mean that like we can functionally function completely on our own. Mm-hmm. Like that's unrealistic. Even, I mean, Norman Wurzba talks about eating, that eating yeah. is like the biggest example of the way that we are tied to the earth because we would not survive without food and food comes from the earth, no matter what form it's in, whether yeah. it's coming in a puffed bag from the Lay's factory <laughs> or if it's like a carrot that you just ripped out of your garden. Yeah. Either way, it is coming from the earth and our ability to survive is wholly dependent upon those things yeah. and those resources. So I think, again, it's this idea of, yeah, the world doesn't revolve um, like around the center of your body. Yeah. But then again, you have this really deep connection to everyone around you. And as much as the, as like the world or society tries to siphon us off and, and make us feel like you are the only person uh, you know, or you have to go about this completely alone. The only way that we're going to understand that deep inherent connection to the earth is by recognizing our deep inherent connection to other people. What is it about nature specifically in this? So this whole section of meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscape. Like, I love that. Like, I, so I've been to, I've been really fortunate. You know, I, I love hiking. I love canyoneering. I love paddleboarding. Like, I've been to a real, lot of really cool places on earth. And there's just always something that strikes me um, when I'm in these, in these places when I see like the dragonflies flitting around in the air or the birds or the fish in these ponds that I'm at, they live there all the time. Yeah. I'm just a visitor and like I get to be there and it's amazing while I'm there. But like, even when I leave, that stuff is still there. Yeah. Like the, those dragonflies are living their entire lives there and that beauty still exists. And there, like, I found myself, um, calling back to those places and being like, that beauty is still there. I, it's okay. I'm like, I, that's somehow, I don't know how, but it somehow lightens the load on me. Have you ever experienced that? Yeah, but I, I don't know if you're going to like what I'm about to say. <laughs> so say I've been reading so much, yeah. you know, and like, I feel like it occupies all my time. And that's uh, why I said, you know, before we even started, you asked me what I've been doing this summer. And yeah. I said, a lot of reading, lot of does reading. that count? <laughs> and Um, you know, I told you that I look forward to these walks that I do pretty much every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
in my reading, you know, I've been kind of like, oh, I want to be hiking more. I want to be like in quote unquote nature more. And then of course I'm reading and um, in one of these books, it talks about commodification of the very naming of nature. Yes. (laughs) And that like we hold on a pedestal, this idea of nature, pristine wilderness. But then, you know, this idea that even that nature is, is kind of constructed, constructed. Yeah. Yeah. Like we forced native peoples off those lands to preserve them, um, as, as being holy will sites of wilderness. And, um, well, I'm not, I, of course I am not saying that, you know, I don't advocate (laughs) for national parks and, and things that are preserving some of those very sacred and, and, um, beautiful places. But it was interesting how I had, I had been thinking this way all along that, you know, I go on these walks and the other day it started raining and I just was in so much awe at how beautiful everything looked after it had rained and, um, how harsh the rain was. I was completely drenched, you know? Yeah. Or, um, you know, I saw some, some bees buzzing in lavender. Um, and there were so many bees. I just couldn't get over how many bees there were. And it was just in someone's front yard. And so, you know, I, I, I finally have like accepted this idea that, you know, we can, we can appreciate those landscapes that are beautiful and seemingly untouched Mm -hmm. and completely preserved in certain ways, but also that like nature needn't be this idyllic landscape that these landscapes can also lend itself to the to the more suburban or even right. urban, um, but that like recognizing the the intermingling or kind of the the natural aspects of even just yeah. a weed sprouting from the crack yeah. in my driveway. You know, that reminds me. You've seen Miyazaki films, right? Studio Ghibli. Yeah. That one of I think one of the best things about Miyazaki films is that in between these in between scenes, right? Like if you watch Totoro, right? It's all, it's all around this, this house and this tree, right? But there it's like spliced together with just these beautiful little quaint scenes of like the grass around mm-hmm. this house. Right. And it's just like, it's so ordinary. It's so mundane. And, but yet the way that Miyazaki portrays it is like just lush beauty. Mm-hmm. It's just right there. Yeah. For us to see, right? And it's like even walking downtown Salt Lake, there's grasses that like if you got in, if you got down close enough and like, you know, like focused your attention, you could see little ants crawling around in the grass, going about their lives as if the whole world wasn't there. Yeah. Right. And like I you're you're totally right. So I guess to kind of uh tie tie the two together is that what I think is so great about, you know, when I go out to these great places is that I see these the world going on. Yeah. I see the world going on without me. Yeah. And it's and, going on back home. And it's going, it's on, going back on, home. on. Yeah. When you're at home and that nature still exists. Whether I'm there to see it or not. Yeah. It, it goes on. Yeah. And it exists. And there's something really liberating about that. Mm-hmm. Right. That I think to go back to that first line, you don't have to be good. There's this, there's this, this feeling like it's all up to me. Mm-hmm. Right. But to, to release that and say, Oh, it's not up. It's not up to me. 
right? That, that, the, the goodness and the beauty of this is still, it's going to be there regardless of whether or not I'm there to see it. Yeah. And there's something really, uh, liberating about that, I think. And then it's moving over all types of landscapes. I mean, there's a reason it says landscapes and not wilderness or, you know, these very specified, I mean, she does specify over the prairies and deep trees and mountains and rivers, but all of those things exist, not just in a pristine wilderness landscape. Yeah. Um, just to close this one out, um, there's a quote from Wallace Stegner, um, from the wilderness letter that he wrote. Um, he says, even when I can't get to the backcountry, the thought of the colored deserts of Southern Utah or the reassurance that there are still stretches of prairies where the world can be instantaneously perceived as disc and bowl and where the little but intensely important human being is exposed to the five directions of the 36 winds is a positive consolation. The idea alone can sustain me. Okay, that final stanza. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Yeah, see, I feel like it goes back to everything that we've already talked about, that you are part of this family of creation or, you know, maybe secularly that you are part of this ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Um, I think... You know, it's not an unpopular thought now to believe that uh, environmentalists or, um, you know, biologists are really trying to say we can't solely focus on the idea of life as or like natural life on Earth as being, um, you know, only creaturely that humans are very much a part of that, like creaturely existence. Um, So whether we like it or not they're an integral part. Um, and I think that's like, to me, that's really beautiful that I'm part of this family of all different types of life and creation and existence. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, whoever you are, no matter how lonely, Yeah. because what is one of the most common experiences of, of anyone in these days, loneliness, right? especially in the pandemic, 1000% it's loneliness. Right. Yeah. Um, and there's a, there's a huge difference between loneliness and solitude. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I, especially in this world where there's so much mental health issues going around, right. That there's so much anxiety being experienced, so much depression, so much loneliness, so much sadness. Um, and I think all of it is a, is a byproduct of our disconnection from ourselves and our disconnection from the, from, from the landscape. Um, and, uh, I think that the solution to that, uh, or part of the solution to that is experiencing yourself as a member of creation, experiencing yourself as, um, as being a member of the family of things, right? Cause like I've, I think, cause you know, I, I have a little bit of survivor's guilt, um, from the millennial generation that I don't actually have that much anxiety or depression. Yeah. Uh, so I have a little bit of survivor's guilt because I know, virtually all of my friends and, you know, my, my siblings like have a lot of that going on. And I don't know if it's, if I just got lucky or if it's that my, my experiences with nature and my, my, you know, that I feel so connected to the natural world is something to do with that. Um, but I think that some of the most healing experiences I've ever had have been when I've experienced myself as 
belonging to this larger family. Yeah. And I, I don't think you're alone in feeling that way either. Um, and I think one of the ways that we heal ourselves is by looking like, I, I know that a lot of the times, uh, you, you know, anxiety and depression can be mitigated or, um, you know, in a combination of, of therapy and right. whatnot. But, um, one of the ways that, you know, some people go about it is by engaging with, with the world. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, separate from anxiety and depression, just as a human being too, like the best way to get over yourself is to look outward, I think. Yeah. Um, and see those things that, you know, you're connected to beyond yourself. So I, I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think you're alone and kind of experiencing that as well. Yeah. I think part of that, that loneliness is like we've said, it's the feeling like it's all up to you. Right. Yeah. Right. What a suffocating story that is right. That, and so Paul, he, in the new Testament, Paul talks about the the weight of glory, Mm. right. And the weight of glory is, is more than any one person can hold alone. And the burden of sin is more than any one person can hold alone. And so that's why, that's why he ends up talking about the body of Christ and that through the body of Christ, you can stand underneath the weight of glory and you can deal with the burden of sin. Um, but it goes back to that, that whole idea of meanwhile, right? That mm-hmm. I have my own despairs, my own sorrows, but meanwhile, the flow of reality moves forward. Right. And that my, that if I can decenter my own story and center on the story, you know, the, the, with the italicized, the story of reality that I can find myself in that flow of, of, of all things moving forward. That includes dragonflies bouncing around ponds in Zion national park. And like that includes carp being afraid of my shadow in, in Lake Powell. And it includes little dragon or uh, like praying mantises in my garden and in my lawn. Right. That all of these things are taken together in one lump rather than as separate and alone. Yeah. Cause what a tragedy it would be to oh, like, yeah. to really, to feel that, that, that aloneness. Yeah. Um, maybe just to kind of tie the, the ends on this, mm-hmm. um, is a quote from Norman Wersba. We're just really, we love Norman Wersba here. He's going to be yeah. on the podcast at some point. <gasps> oh, We're going to get him. Okay. Um, he says to live in communion with the earth, fully acknowledging nature's power with humility and grace is a practice of spiritual mindfulness that heals and restores making peace with the earth. We make the world a place where we can be one with nature. In the beginning, you mentioned, you know, that God says that the, that the earth is good, 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 very good. Right. Um, and something that I really like in the Franciscan approach to Christianity is that that is the the foundation for what's they call original goodness, mm. and in Mormonism we kind of believe that too, right? That you yeah. know we don't really we don't really emphasize original sin. In fact, we don't even believe in original sin, right? True. Um, and so this idea of like being a part of the family of things is is saying that you do, you don't you don't have to be good because everything is already good. Yeah, and that we haven't lost that original goodness yet. That even though Adam and Eve, like, and honestly, like if I could rewrite it, I would, I would stop saying the word fall because I don't think that that's, I don't think that's helping us very much right now. And I think that's like part of our puritanical like past. Um, but that the earth began 
good, 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 very good. And mm-hmm. our soft animal bodies came out of that goodness. Yeah. And we are a part of that flow of goodness that hasn't been interrupted yet. It yeah. hasn't be- be- become not good yet. And so, uh, like what a thing to be able to, to relax into Mm-hmm. And say that, no, you don't have to be good. You are already a part of something good. Right. And how liberating that becomes. Yeah. And that we can think of it maybe instead of a fall as in an entrance into that family of things. Yeah. Too. Hell like, yeah. This is something that, of course, was designed um, and that we knew was going to happen. Um, and that Eve had the greater understanding of the the larger picture Um and, and yeah, very much an entrance into that family through that event. Yeah. And so it's original goodness, original good. Yeah. So <laughs> when we talk about loneliness, right. Right. What a burden loneliness can be when we feel like we have to be good or else I'm not going to get to heaven. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I can relax back into, I'm already a part of something very good. The God even said was very good. Yeah. And I can in that relaxing back in, it's like, I'm sure you're, I'm sure you've like floated a river before, right? Right. One of the most exhausting experiences of your life can be floating a river. If you are trying to paddle Fighting and current. fight, fight every current, fight it all. It can be exhausting and it can just destroy you. Or you can relax into the flow of the river and let it take you where it's going. And just, you know, occasionally just like, poof, you know, push, mm-hmm. push, push, right. And to main, keep yourself in that flow. Um, and so that's kind of, that's how I feel like this poem is, is asking us to do is it's to relax back into our membership and the family of all things. That's already very good. You, we are already participating in the great good flow of reality right? and let that transform inside of you and become a participatory goodness yeah. extending out from us instead of this thing that we have to do or else, or yeah. else, or else, or else. Well, and I think there's another reason that so much of like God's, you know, gospel or, or the gospel of Jesus Christ is focused on service is the idea of, um, you know, serving others, lifting others, mm-hmm. being, like you said, this participant in, uh, you know, the family of things. Yeah. Um, and that goes, you know, service from person to person, but service to person from person to thing and, and creation in general. Personal landscape. Yeah. And that, you know, our judgment is not going to be insular, but like you said, it, it will be most likely, well, my theory, I guess, is, is that it will be, how well did you, you know, integrate into that family of, of creation and also how did you serve it? Yeah. And that ultimately I think, especially with the emphasis that Mormonism has on community ceilings, family ceilings, is that we won't be taken alone. We will yeah. be taken together together. Yeah. And so there's this one lump, one lumpness, right? That I won't ever be judged as an individual. I will be judged as a community Yeah. and how like relieving that is totally because it's the weight of glory can be held by all of us and all, and all of me, like I include the earth as well. And my own, my own breath, my own diet, my own Your existence flesh, like in, in, yeah. implies that I am much more than just this, this soft animal of my body, right? That it includes much more and that God has already said, all of this is already very good. Yeah. And what a, what a freaking relationship. Yeah. Thank goodness. <laughs> I don't know if I'd get there otherwise. Well, none of us would get there if it was up Still to Still don't. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. So I think that 
that relaxing back into that flow of participatory goodness is like at the heart of this poem. Absolutely. And I think that's really healing and restorative. Absolutely. Uh, could you, could you do us the, uh, the favor of reading through the poem one more time? Yes. Wild Geese by Mary Oliver. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about your, about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things.